0: Please open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 16. We've been following the people of Israel as they make their way out of their slavery in Egypt. And they are headed ultimately towards the land of Canaan, the promised land, what today we would call Israel and a bit beyond modern day Israel, this land of promise that God had given to Israel. And in the midst of all of that, They had to make this journey from Egypt to Canaan by way of Mount Sinai. And God had important things to work in their lives. Look, we do this not just as a history lesson, although I I would find it fascinating just as a history lesson. But we do this because it shows us something about who God is. And it shows us something about who we are in our relationship with God. And that's why we take a look together here, starting at verse 1. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Last time we were together in the book of Exodus, we saw that the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, came to the other side, they saw a tremendous victory over those who had enslaved them for hundreds of years by seeing those dead Egyptians washed up on the shores of the Red Sea. But we saw this, also saw this, they came out of it singing. They were worshiping God. They were singing songs of gratitude and glorification to God. Well, that's all fine and good, but then you've got to walk through the wilderness And they came from a place, verse 1 tells us, a place called Elim. We know that was a place with a lot of oases and palm trees. And it was an easy place to live, a lot of comfort, a lot of goodness. God called them out of Elim and sent them towards Mount Sinai. But in between Elim and Sinai, in the middle was, you saw the phrase, the wilderness of sin. Now you might think that that's just like a symbolic description. Aha! I know what that's all about. It's all about what? It's all about sin. And the wilderness of sin. And couldn't, I think I could preach a good message on that. Here's my preaching verse. Are you in the wilderness of sin this morning? But look, actually, the wilderness of sin doesn't have anything to do with sin. Not really. It's just a geographic description. Now, as we're gonna see this morning and later on, Israel did plenty of sinning in the wilderness of sin. But there's no connection between the words to sin and the description of this place. Matter of fact, you could put a Z instead of an S in that just as easily, and you could call it the wilderness of Zin. But it's just the idea. They're going one, one, from one place to another place. And now, verse 2, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What a fascinating psychological study verses two and three are about the heart that finds it so easy to complain. Now, notice this. I want you to notice the nature of their complaint. Number one, their complaint is had some connection to reality. What was the connection with reality? They needed food. They were now 30 days out of Egypt. They had been on this trip from Egypt for about 30 days. And we can estimate that their supplies that they brought with them from Egypt had about run out by this time. And now they were looking ahead at this wilderness, which was not like a Sahara desert, kind of sandy wilderness. Think more of sagebrush and lightly grassed area. Not exactly hospitable, but on the other hand, it wasn't like a sandy desert. But still, they were looking ahead at the somewhat desolate wilderness and thinking, we've got to be fed for the next years or months or however long we're out here in the wilderness. Where's this food going to come from? There's no restaurants. There's no grocery stores. There's no obvious provision of food. What are we going to do? Matter of fact, I think that the complaining was based more on the anticipation of hunger than it was present starvation. They weren't starving to death right then and there. But they were looking ahead and thinking, if we don't have food soon, then we are going to starve. What are you going to do for us, Moses? And they complained against Moses. And did you see the phrase? It says, first of all, in verse 2, it says that they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. But then did you see what it says there in verse 3? It says that they sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full in Egypt. Did you see how they're distorting the truth of the past? Friends, you know and I know what apparently they didn't know, at least at that moment of time that they lived for hundreds of years as wretched slaves in Egypt. They had the snap of the whip-like lash upon their back. They were forced to do work without pay. They were treated like animals. They were fed with scraps. And now they're looking back to those nostalgic days of, oh, wasn't it great back in Egypt? It's amazing how our minds can do this. How sometimes our minds can look at the past And in that creative memory aspect that we have in our heads, we can make the past seem so much worse than it actually was sometimes. Or sometimes we can make the past seem so much better than it actually was sometimes. It's a gift to be able to see the past correctly. And here it was with them. They weren't. And they were thinking, oh, wouldn't it be better if God just killed us all? We were in the bliss of our slavery in Egypt. You take a look back and say, what are you even talking about? You were slaves back then. You had no freedom. You had no liberty. What were you doing? Well, this is how they were thinking in the midst of their discouragement. Now, I have to say that when we talk about this idea of complaining, it's always a little bit difficult to talk about it. Because sometimes, and I'm just going to be very honest with you, I think sometimes it's possible for pastors or for preachers or whoever to be overly sensitive to complaining and to criticism. Sometimes we just have too thin skin, too thin. Our skin is too thin. And, and we, we overreact to complaints or to criticism and things like that. And the last thing you want is, is an is a atmosphere where people feel condemned for criticizing or for complaining in some way or another. But I will tell you where it is very dangerous. Let me tell you this very frankly. This is where it's dangerous. It's not so much when you complain against people. It's when you complain against the Lord. Now, later on in verse eight, specifically of this chapter, we're going to find out very plainly that their complaint, they thought they were complaining against Moses and Aaron, but they were really complaining against the Lord. And friends, that's how I feel. If you've got a complaint against me, Maybe it's justified, maybe it's not. At least I should be willing to hear it. But what's far more concerning, especially in your spiritual life, is if you're actually having a complaint against God. And sometimes complaints against God masquerade as complaints against people. This is a difficult thing. And we need spiritual discernment to negotiate our way through this very difficult aspect of Christian living in any regard. Look at verse four with me together. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Do you see what God's saying here? It's really kind of a surprise. I wish I could wipe your minds clean so that you couldn't see how, well, excuse me, so that you could see how strange this actually is. You're hungry? God says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna rain down bread from heaven upon you. Isn't that weird? Does God normally provide for our needs that way? Oh, Lord, I really need this. Okay, great. I'm gonna drop it down literally from the sky and you can pick it up off the ground. God said, you need bread? I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Here's a little principle. Bread doesn't normally rain down from heaven. But it was going to for Israel in this circumstance. This was a completely unexpected way that God would provide for their need. Now, later on, Israel called this bread from heaven by a different name. Do you know the name they called it by? You know it. It's manna. But I want you to notice. Never, or maybe I should say rarely, be a little reserved this, rarely does God call it manna. That's what the people called it. Do you know what God mostly calls it? Bread from heaven. You can find it right here in Exodus 16. You can find it in Nehemiah 9 and Psalm 78. And in Psalm 105, God calls it bread from heaven. And at one time in Psalm 76, he called, excuse me, 78, he calls it angel's food. I don't know if that's what angels actually eat. I don't know if it tasted like angels' food cake. I don't know what exactly. But Psalm 78 calls it angels' food. Now, by the way, a little teaser for just a little bit in the message. I'm going to reveal to you what manna tasted like. It's in the Bible. Did you know that was in the Bible? The Bible tells us what manna tasted like, and it's going to be shocking to some of you as we go into verse 3. No, really. You you won't predict this. Verse 3. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, Starting now at verse six, it says, then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel at evening, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full, For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Okay, first of all, that just tells you what I told you before, that their complaints, they thought they were complaining against Moses and Aaron when actually they were complaining against the Lord. And that's the dangerous place to be. But secondly, I want you to notice this, that God said, I am going to show you something different. And as I show you something different, I am going to display my glory to you. It's right there in verse seven. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. Now, actually, this meant two things. First of all, as God revealed this to the people, there was going to be sort of a special display of his radiant glory. But I'll tell you what it meant in an even greater way, in an even greater way. It was a display of God's glory that he fed them with this bread from heaven every morning for the next decades as they made their way through the wilderness into the promised land. I, I have to say that as I thought about this week, this really touched my heart. Because I thought about that. The daily supply of bread from heaven was a demonstration of God's glory. Well, I don't know if you think about it that way, but I sure did. You see, usually I'm thinking of a demonstration of God's glory to be something so out of the ordinary, so different than everyday life. If God were to display his glory, it'd have to be like, you know, in a big ball of flame right here on the platform. Or some radiant presence, you know, emanating out. And everybody would gasp and go, oh, it's the glory of the Lord. Something to attract a lot of attention, bells and whistles. But you know what God says? God says, many times I will display my glory by providing for your needs day in and day out and showing myself to be a faithful God to you. Ladies and gentlemen, can we not say with great confidence that in this we have seen the glory of the Lord? Well, I don't want to minimize for a moment difficult times that any of you are going through. And I'm sure that some of you, either in the past or maybe in the present, it could even be in the future. There's some difficult times for you to go through. There's economic ups and downs that not only our nation goes through, but our community goes through and you experience personally. But through it all, God has been good to us and he's provided. Well, I'm not going to say that God gives us everything that's on our great big wish list that we ever want in our life. There's places we wish we could go that we can't. There's things we wish we can have that we don't. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God feeding us, clothing us, and giving us another day to breathe breath on this earth. That is a display of his glory. And near as I can tell, God has been very good to everybody in this room. I don't see a single unclothed person in this room. That's a testimony that God's good. He gives us clothes on our back. He gives us food in our belly. God has been good to us. And this is why I want you to see It is a display of his glory that he does this. And how often I've had a I've had an insensitive heart towards this. How often I've refused to see the power and the goodness, indeed, the glory of God in his everyday provision for me and for those people around me. And I just think we should just take a step back and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this display of your glory. Thank you that I have enough to eat and clothes on my back. And, and even though there are some times that are easier and there are some times that are more difficult, you have glorified yourself through the provision in my life. That's what he was saying here. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. Now, verse nine. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaint Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Israel, I'm going to provide for your needs. You want meat to eat? I'll bring it to you. Do you want bread? I'll bring it to you. And I'm sure all Israelis think, how is this going to happen? Are deliveries of food going to come to us from Egypt? Is, you know, a grocery store going to appear in the midst of the world? God, how are you going to do this? God says, don't worry about it. I have unseen treasuries of resources that I can provide for you from. You don't have to have his provision figured out before he brings it to you. Here he's going to provide for Israel and he's going to do it by his glory. So look at here, verse 13 and 14. It's wonderful. It says, so it was that the quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. You have two kinds of food miraculously coming to Israel. One is meat, quail. All these quail come and they just sort of dive bomb the camp of Israel. And there's quail everywhere. Now, this is really remarkable, although you should know that it is well known that in that part of the world, there are migrations of quail that regularly happen. And it has happened that large quantities of quail have just been dropped down upon people as a part of this migratory pattern of the birds. It may be that what God did was that he took a naturally occurring phenomenon and he amplified it. He pumped it up. He made it so much bigger than has ever happened before or will ever happen again. But he gave them miraculously quail to eat in the wilderness. And what do you think they did with those little birds? Well, they took them, they plucked them and they fried them in a pan and they ate them up. Nice little recipes being passed about quail, this quail, that They enjoyed the quail that God brought to them. I thought about sharing a few quail recipes with you this morning, but I don't really know. That was the first kind of food. The second kind of food, look at it in verse 14. It was a small, round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So it was meat in the evening. Now, by the way, the quail was not a regularly occurring event. The quail seems to be sent occasionally. But this that they experienced in the morning came every day or six days a week, I should say, as we'll see. It was a small, round substance as fine as frost on the ground. It was small. It was round. It was fine. Therefore, it was not easy to gather and it had to be carefully swept up. Now, Exodus chapter 16, verse 31 better describes this. And I'll get a little bit ahead of myself to describe it to you. It says that it was like coriander seed. That would make it about the size of a sesame seed. Do you have that in your mind? Scattered all across the ground. It also says that it was sweet like honey and that it was the color of bdellium. That is a pearl-like color. They either baked it or boiled it. Now, what did it taste like? Well, I'll tell you this, that Jewish legends tell us that it tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. Now, those are just legends, but I find a lot of humor sometimes in these Jewish legends. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, Lord, today I want that carne asada burrito. And there it was. Boom. You take a spoonful of manna and there it is in your mouth you know, or whatever it would be, you know, just, just be, oh, wouldn't that be great? Now, I don't think that's true, but that's a Jewish legend. No, the Bible actually tells us what it tasted like. Numbers chapter 11, verse 8 says that they ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar. They cooked it in pans and they made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Now, ladies and gentlemen, pastries prepared with oil, what does that say to you? Do you ever think that God fed Israel for 40 years in the wilderness with some super nutritious donuts that he provided for them? Or at least they cooked it. They had to prepare it and all. I don't know if there was different ways of cooking or preparing manna, but I just find that fascinating. Pastry prepared with oil. I don't know where else you go with that other than equivalent to our modern day donut. And that's what they had for 40 years in the wilderness. Now. Researchers wonder exactly what this substance was. It is true that in that part of the world, there's a particular insect that burrows into the tamarisk tree and exudes some sap from the tamarisk tree. There's some process that goes on in the insect, and there's a small sugary globule that comes from the insect and can drop to the ground, And just as we're going to see later on with manna and in the heat of the day, those globules just vanish. Some people think this was manna. As a matter of fact, to my understanding, I'm not an expert in this, but to my understanding, the Arabs call this substance that comes from the insects man from the word manna. Was this it? Well, I don't really think so. But again, isn't it possible That God simply amplified miraculously a naturally occurring phenomenon. Perhaps. The bottom line is this. I don't know exactly the scientific description of how the manna came or what explanation there would be for it. I just know that God faithfully provided it for them every morning and he fed a nation in the wilderness even as he said it was. Now notice this one other thing I want you to see in verse 14. It says, that it was as fine as frost on the ground. Do you know what that means? It means that when they went to gather it, they had to stoop over, perhaps get on their knees and sweep it up carefully. You don't want much dirt in it, do you? Sweep it up carefully and take it back for the preparation of your household. I find this fascinating, that God taught Israel through the giving of the manna. How did he teach him? Well, first of all, he taught them. You have to cooperate with my work. God said this, I am going to do what you can't do. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven, but I'm not going to just drop it into your mouth as you open up your mouth towards heaven. God says, no, I am going to put it there and you have to receive what I come to give you, but you can only receive it with a humble heart So bend down, stoop down, maybe get down on your knees and sweep up the bread from heaven that I provide for you. God says as much in a beautiful passage from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Look at this passage. He says this. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Does that verse sound familiar to you? You remember that Jesus later quoted that verse in the Gospels. Do you remember that? But did you know that it was directly tied to the provision of manna that God gave to them? I find this very instructive for you and for me. It's as if God was saying this. Israel, I'm going to blow your mind with a miracle. Here's the manna for heaven. Now, I want you to get up and gather it and eat it. And you'll feed on this for 40 years. Here's the manna for you. But my giving it to you isn't just about putting food in your belly. It's about developing something in your soul. It's about developing something in your life. And isn't that exactly how God works in our life? You're hungry. You have a need. You have something that perhaps could be satisfied. Very, very, very practical sort of thing. And what does God do? He says, yes, I'll meet your practical need, but I want to teach your soul along the way. Will you listen to me as I teach your soul? And friends, how many times has it been that God has tried to get through to us, has tried to teach our soul with some practical need, something that you need from him right then, right now. But for some reasons, we receive the gift that he gives, but we close our ears to hear what he would say to our soul in the midst. God was shouting to Israel through the provision of manna. I just don't care for your belly. I care for your soul. And he cares for your soul as well. I wonder if there's not some people here this morning, you're at some point of extremity. You've got a real need in your life and God cares about your need. And I think he wants to meet your need, but it's not just about fixing your problem. It's about revealing who he is to you in a greater way than you've ever known before. It's about building you as a person of faith and trust in the Lord. It's about making your light for him shine brighter than it's ever shined before. And if we miss this, just say, God, give me, give me, give me. Then What, what kind of people are we? do we say, no, Lord, I rely upon you for my daily sustenance. But would you touch my soul and teach my soul as well? Verse 15. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. I can just imagine they walk out and they go, what is this stuff? Well, this is the bread from heaven. That's not bread. That's like weird stuff on the ground. Bend down, sweep it up, go prepare it. You'll see that it's bread from heaven. So verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let not anyone leave any of it until morning. I find this fascinating that how did God want people to gather the manna? You go out and get it for yourself as an individual or at the most as a family. And wouldn't it be better just for me to pay somebody to go gather the manna for me? God says, no, there's not going to be a manna market. There's not going to be speculating in manna futures. You go out and you get it day by day, but neither was there to be a tribal manna gathering and distribution center. This wasn't corporate socialism, nor was it even a free market. God says simply this, I'll provide it for you person by person, family by family. You go out and get it. And that's how God was going to provide for the nation. Verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Oh, I love this for a few reasons. First of all, God said, gather it, use it that day or it's going to spoil. And what did they say? Oh, who cares? And what did it happen? It spoiled. So God just said, well, it's bad to be stupid. Just listen to what I say. Reminds me of a quote from the great philosopher, John Wayne. He said, life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. <laughs> well, it's true. They were just, God told them and they just wouldn't listen. But then I want you to know the second thing. And I think this is so beautiful. Verse 21, what happened to the manna when the sun went higher up in the sky and it warmed up in the day? It disappeared. Don't you think that this was God's reinforcement of a work ethic upon Israel? Get out of bed and gather your manna. You can't sleep in. You got to go out and do it. You got to gather it. So get to work. Look, There's work to be done in the day. If you leave it too late, it's going to vanish. You got to go out and get. And I just think it's beautiful. God reinforced a work ethic in Israel. Verse 22. So it was. On the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find any in the field. Six days you shall gather in, gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Like I say, life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See? For the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. I just think it's curious. There are some people who will only learn by personal experience. You can tell them all day long. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. What do they have to do? Touch the stove. Well, it was just this kind of dynamic at work how much better to be a person who's wise and says, I'll learn from somebody else's painful experience or from the commandment of God. Anyway, they learned it eventually. Verse 31, now to the end of the chapter. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So they called it manna, meaning, what is this? But we know what it was. It was bread from heaven. And verse 35 tells us that they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God provided for them throughout all the days in the wilderness by sending them manna all through the years in the wilderness. I think we could end right now and just say, man, okay, great thing. In Exodus chapter 16, God provided for Israel in a certain way. There's a lot we can learn from it. Praise the Lord. Isn't this good? But no, I think there's one other thing that would be irresponsible for me to neglect. And it's simply this. Did you know that Jesus spoke about manna very directly? Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter six, beginning now at verse thirty two. At John 6, verse 32, Jesus speaks about manna. Now, let me set the situation for you. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had a discussion with the people who wanted him to keep on feeding them with his miraculous power. You know that on a few different occasions, Jesus fed great multitudes by multiplying loaves and fishes. Well, on one of those occasions, the people said, this is great, Jesus. Why don't you just keep doing this every day? We don't have to have jobs. We don't have to worry about anything. You're just going to be like a bread factory on two feet, and we'll just follow you around. And so Jesus wanted to discuss this with the people who asked him to keep doing this miracle over and over again. So this is what Jesus said in reply. Ready for this? John chapter 6, starting at verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. That's a very interesting statement Jesus makes. First of all, did Moses give them manna in the wilderness? No, it was God who did it. God sent the heaven. But notice in verse 32, he said, it's God who gives you the true bread from heaven. And what is the true bread from heaven? Look at the next verse, verse 33 for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, who is the true bread of God? I'll give you a hand. It begins with a J and it ends with an S. It's Jesus. Do you see what Jesus was saying? Just like God provided manna for the wil- in the wilderness for the children of Israel, so I have come down from heaven as God's provision of bread for a spiritually starving world. And here's what you need to do and I need to do. We need to take Jesus, figuratively speaking, of course, as if he were bread and receive him into our innermost being. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but there's a lot of similarities to how you need to trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did for you on the cross, there's a lot of similarities between the trust you put in Jesus and eating. First of all, you got to be aware of your need. You have to be hungry. You got to say, Jesus, I come to you and I know I'm in need. Now, there's a such thing as a daily hunger with which we come to Jesus, but there's other times when you're starving literally to death. And there may be some here this morning, You are, spiritually speaking, you are starving to death and Jesus is here now for you to put your trust in him and he will feed your soul. But if you don't feed your soul on Jesus, you're going to starve to death. He's here now to be the difference for you. So not only do you have to be hungry, but secondly, everybody has to gather it for himself and every day. It has to be each and every day. Gather it for yourself. Next, I would say, You have to receive Jesus humbly. Didn't they have to gather manna stooped over or even on their knees? Ladies and gentlemen, you can't come to Jesus proud. You have to come to Jesus humbly. You can't come to Jesus thinking, what a great favor you're doing for him by associating yourself with his cause. Isn't it wonderful for Jesus' sake to have you on his team? No, no. You come to Jesus humbly. You come to him on your knees, either literally or figuratively. you got to come with that deep humility. You have to come with gratitude, knowing that you don't deserve it, just like Israel didn't deserve the manna in the wilderness. And perhaps most importantly, you have to, and of course I'm speaking figuratively, you have to eat it. You have to take this gift that Jesus has, and you have to take it deep inside of you, And say, Jesus, this is what I want. The bread from heaven comes down. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And he says, now, will you eat of it? Will you take it into your innermost being? I fear that there are people who can be in the neighborhood of this bread from heaven, but never eat of it could be like that, right? Look, first and foremost, God hasn't called you to be a food critic. He's called you to eat of him. He hasn't called you to run a restaurant, not first and foremost. You know, you could theoretically serve other people all kinds of food, but die of starvation yourself. He hasn't called you fundamentally to write a cookbook or to watch a cooking show or a competition or to evaluate who's the best chef ever or any of that stuff. He says, no, here it is. Here is the bread from heaven. You eat of it. I'm going to conclude my time now with a prayer. And in the midst of my prayer, I'm going to give an invitation for those who would like to receive Jesus Christ this morning. And what that simply means is this, is if you're willing to repent, that's the humility part. If you're willing to believe upon Jesus, put your faith in him, that's the eating, receiving him part. Then I'll give you an opportunity to do that in the midst of my prayer. And I'll tell you right now exactly what I'm going to do. In the midst of my prayer, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to make that kind of decision for Jesus to stand where they are. Don't do it now. I'll give you a moment in a moment when I pray that this will be your demonstration that you want to receive Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, here we are. Men and women who need you. I suppose there's some here who are aware of that need. and Maybe there's others who are not aware of it. But Jesus, I pray that in every seeking soul this morning, you would come and point them to Jesus, point them to his perfect work on the cross for them. That as he hung on the cross and bore the judgment that we each deserved, that we can be spared that judgment because it was satisfied in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would speak now to starving souls. To people who are so aware that their lives just have something missing. And they've wondered what it was all these years. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to them about how it can be satisfied in Jesus Christ. The bread from heaven. Do it, Lord. Right now, while we're in the midst of prayer, heads are bowed and eyes are reverently closed before the Lord, I simply want to ask if this is you, if you've never received Jesus in this way, that you would receive bread from heaven and eat of him. Maybe you've done it before, but it's so long ago. And you've fallen so far away from that decision that you just feel compelled. You need to do it again. Today is your day to humbly receive who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. I'd just like to ask you to stand to your feet right now. If this is you, please do that. God bless you, sir. Others here this morning bless you. Sir. Bless you. Others here. God bless you, man. I'll give just a moment for other people to stand. You might think it's humbling. Well, you need to come to the Lord with humility. Bless you, man. Others here today. Right, if you've stood or you know you should make this decision, then just pray this prayer after me. And mean it with all of your heart. Lord Jesus, I come to you in humility. I come to eat the bread from heaven that you provide. I look to you. I look to what you did for me on the cross. And I ask that this bread of heaven that you provide would truly give me new I need new life. Bring it to me and walk me forward from this day. I give my life to you and ask that you forgive my sins. In Jesus' name.